X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, September 3rd. A good day to subscribe to The Local and share it with a friend. Today, back in the day, September 3rd, 1783, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay met at the Hotel de York to sign the Treaty of Paris. It brought an end to the Revolutionary War after the Siege of Yorktown in 1781, where American and French forces captured 9,000 British troops. British support for the war plummeted. The war had been costly for Britain in more ways than one, and the British Parliament wanted a truce. Peace talks stalled when Parliament refused to acknowledge America's independence. When Britain took to the polls, Parliament changed hands, and they officially recognized America as an independent nation. Elections have historic consequences. As part of the treaty, Great Britain also ceded the Northwest Territory, a stretch of land that pundits now call the Rust Belt. This doubled America's size and laid the groundwork for westward expansion and the vast displacement of indigenous people across the country. And today, back in the day, September 3rd, 1857, Dr. John McLaughlin, known as the father of Oregon, passed away. McLaughlin was a French-Canadian appointed superintendent of the Columbia Department, an area later called Oregon. At the time, American and Britain both had claims on the area and tensions were brewing. By 1840, American settlers were moving across the Oregon Trail. Despite orders not to assist them, McLaughlin offered aid to those travelers. In 1842, McLaughlin advocated for Oregon to be named an independent state. That move was put on hold, but settlers eventually established the provisional government of Oregon. After resigning from his company position in 1846, McLaughlin settled in Oregon City. There he opened a general store and became famous as the last stop on the Oregon Trail. Now he might be famous to you because you might have driven down McLaughlin Boulevard from southeast Portland to Milwaukee. Today we'll have your Quick 6 News headlines. Augustina Elizabeth joins us with a focus on the police response to mental health issues. And Brooke Jackson Glidden, editor of Eater PDX, is back with an update on restaurants in Portland. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. The first day of school for Portland public school students, Wednesday. Portland Public Schools did begin classes online. Some school districts will continue remote learning, at least for the first two months. Some schools and rural districts have opened for in-person classes. Remote learning will include a mix of live instruction over video chat and independent work. PPS has a technology help hotline to help the transition to online classes. Schools are having soft starts. That'll include professional development for teachers, lesson planning time, and family support. In addition to instruction, schools will also provide nutrition hubs for students and families that rely on schools for healthy meals. Unlike classes in the spring, schools will be taking attendance, giving letter grades, and testing students once again. As counties continue to report lower rates of COVID cases, more schools are considering reopening for in-person classes. A district needs to have a positivity rate of 5% or less of COVID cases for three consecutive weeks. Right now, Multnomah County is reporting 41 positive cases for every 100,000 people. To open schools for students in third grade and below, that number has to be reduced to 30 cases per 100,000 people. A district will need to have an infection rate of 5% or less for three consecutive weeks, also a low case rate per 100,000 people. Right now, Multnomah County is reporting 41 positive cases for every 100,000 human beings. To open schools for third graders and younger, that number has to be reduced to 30 cases per 100,000. To open schools for older students, that number has to get out of 10 per 100,000. So Multnomah County still has a long way to go before in-person classes will resume. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, three new deaths, 140 new cases. If you've been keeping track of this count in the local, you know those 140 new cases are a low number relative to previous weeks, that is. 
Health Authority reports that daily cases are, in fact, on the decline. The week as of Monday, August 24th through Sunday, August 30th, the Health Authority reported 1,558 new cases of COVID-19 infection. That's the lowest weekly total since the end of June and down 8.6% from last week. The Oregon Health Authority in the news again on a different matter. They are considering increased taxes on alcohol and tobacco. State agencies are scrambling for new revenue due to the recent economic downturn, and this year lawmakers are considering larger new taxes on drinking and smoking. Measure 108 would raise the tax on a pack of cigarettes from buck 33 to three bucks and 33 cents. The last time Oregonians raised a tobacco tax was a 60 cent increase 18 years ago, back in 2002. Raising taxes on alcohol has been even more controversial. Taxes on beer and wine have not been raised in Oregon in almost 40 years. And you can thank the lobbyist for a bunch of those industries, Paul Romaine, for stopping those taxes over the past years. Oregon has some of the very lowest taxes on alcohol in the whole country. After months of lobbying from opposing groups, the Oregon Health Authority has released its proposed budget for the next biennium. That's 2021 to 2023. A reminder that Oregon budgets for two-year cycles, it means, by the way, that our guesses are often bad. Another reason why the kicker is so screwed up, we'll talk about that another time. Proponents of the increases say the taxes will help Oregon's high rate of untreated alcohol addiction. The tobacco tax increases face less opposition. The alcohol tax has fierce opponents. Neither lawmakers nor Kate Brown have yet to weigh in on that proposed increase. State lawmakers are questioning the head of Oregon's employment department. The questioning was part of several days of hearings about the state's unemployment crisis. Acting Director David Gerstenfeld, we've talked about him before, updated lawmakers on the statistics. Since mid-March, about 538,000 people have filed for regular unemployment benefits. About 345,000 have received them. That means 21,000 are still waiting on benefits. The rest were denied or stopped filing weekly claims. The backlog for the pandemic unemployment benefits, the PUA money, that's even larger. More than 46,000 have been paid, but 32,000 are still waiting. Gershenfeld also said that Oregon has received funding from the federal government for a $300 a week supplement to unemployment. That extra $300 would last for five weeks. He said the program will start sometime in September, did not specify when exactly. Oregon Employment Department will now focus on modernizing its archaic computer system. Implementing Senate Bill 1701, however, will be pushed back until December. The bill would allow part-time workers to earn more and still get full benefits. A suicide prevention and wellness program is launched for Oregon students. The OHA and the Department of Education are teaming up with local nonprofits to implement the program. Its evidence base centers racial equity as part of its suicide prevention policies and plans. Lines for Life, a nonprofit, is going to hire four new wellness coordinators across the state to help implement the program. We are facing a stressful time around the country. We've seen increases in almost all the indicators of depression and stress. Lines for Life will work with school districts, educational service districts, local suicide prevention organizations. They'll also offer $1,000 mini-grants for teacher and student training and curriculum. And in our ripples of hope, Clark County and the city of Vancouver are partnering with Mercy Corps to help small businesses. They're going to provide grants of $2,500 to $10,000 for businesses with fewer than five employees or low to moderate income. The program especially encourages minority-owned, women-owned, and veteran-owned businesses to apply. The grants will be awarded by the end of October. The money is provided through Vancouver's Community Development Block Grant and the U.S. Treasury's Coronavirus Relief Fund. Mercy Corps will also give small businesses access to online courses to help small businesses thrive during the pandemic. Thanks to everyone helping out there. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Brooke Jackson-Glidden, editor for Eater Portland, and host Andy Lindbergh, give an update on food carts in the Portland area. The good and bad of keeping a business going during COVID-19. Brooke, hello, good morning. Good morning. 
Uh, so uh, food carts, it seems like that's a, 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 a quintessentially uh, modern Portland thing. Um, they've, they've got a lot going for them that's pandemic friendly. There's minimal server to customer interaction. It's takeout by default. There's not any indoor seating. So are food carts surviving better than other restaurants? Oh, and if yes, or what's going on? You know, it's such a complicated answer to that question, which <laughs> I think has been um, sort of missed in, in the conversations about food carts uh, before this point. I think, you know, there is that sort of, if you think about it, um, in a vacuum, totally, right? Food carts seem totally set to succeed in a moment like this. Sure. They, you know, are absolutely um, light on their feet. They are well set for dining out. You know, it's it's pretty much everything you just said. Um, unfortunately, um, I think that food carts have been struggling in their own right just because there is now such a high demand for things that they have um, been doing for such a long time. You know, uh, the demand for takeout materials like to-go boxes has increased significantly, which has raised prices. Um, you still have some of the same issues where uh, people aren't tipping or, or people aren't going out in the same way. Um, and there's also the, the issues of trying to find food frequently because of, um, you know, the occasional shortage, um, mm -hmm. upcharges on, on ingredients. So, you know, food carts have been adapting um, and are generally in a better position than restaurants in many cases. But um, I think because people have assumed that they're doing great, they've also been targeted with things like threaten, you know, landlords threatening them for uh, threatening to raise rents or evict, um, those sorts of things. Because why aren't they making a ton of money? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, in uh, your article, uh, the scrappiness of Portland's food carts made them leaders during the pandemic. You you talk about that how uh, increasing uh, increases in rent. Are, are an issue and it's it, of course uh, hearing you point some of these things out about that there's uh, of course a run been a run on uh, to go containers there's I mean I'm sure each of us uh, has seen examples of of uh, the supply chain breaking down whether that be for paper goods or um, because of the each, uh, issues in the meatpacking industry um what what are what are some of the other things that are going on behind the scenes that are creating challenges for food carts? Sure. So, you know, just if you think about food carts in general, like in the history of food carts, you've had issues of um sort of where they're placed and what that means in terms of long term to long term stability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about like the Alder Street food carts last year, um, a lot of food carts were set up on developable, developable land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think that has made it so, you know, food carts end up being pushed out of spaces and then have to find a new place to land. Um, and that does end up being very difficult for folks. Um, I think that if they, if food carts, had a leg up it was because they were used to being in a tumultuous industry mm -hmm. um you know there is such high demand um there are so many the market you know completely oversaturated in certain ways there are so 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 many food carts 
So people are, have to compete. They have to stay light on their feet. They have to stay creative. Um, and you're working in this tiny, tiny kitchen. So, you know, the amount of food you can store, the amount of food you can yes. make, um, all of that really requires food court owners to be uh, very smart about how they run a business. Well, and, and innovative, I would think. Are, are, are there some uh, unique survival strategies that, that you've seen uh, in uh, recent months that, that uh, you can share? Absolutely. Um, I think that actually, I, I, I don't think that this was done in an attempt to you know win people over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really do think that a lot of food carts, when they ha- realized that they had the opportunity to stay open when so many restaurant owners closed, they jumped into this role of mutual aid in their communities. You know, mm. they started to serve food for free to, you know, unemployed restaurant workers or frontline workers or, you know, underserved populations. And people, I think, just really admired that choice. And so people felt more inclined to visit those restaurants and pay money when they had the opportunity to. So, you know, you've seen that with like Mata and Kim Jong Grillin and, you know, I think mm-hmm. Key Loaded Kitchen her uh, Feeding Black Portland initiative, you know, people really wanted to support business owners that were take, making the choice when they had a leg up at a certain point to help other people. That, that They were rewarded for that in certain ways. Um, I also think people have gotten really creative with, like, single-day specials. Again, Mata does these really fun, like, you know, fast food days and, and Vietnamese fried chicken in the style of KFC sort of things. You know, um, you're seeing that MS Tasty, very similar, like, daily specials that play into people's um, desire to get something before it's gone, to not miss out on an opportunity. Um, you know, that's that was a choice that was born out of the fact that, you know, product is unreliable. They couldn't uh-huh. really stick to a normal menu. But uh, people wanted to get it while they're getting good. So, you know, they're getting higher numbers in the days that they are open because they're doing things that are so, you know, get it while you can. Well, I, I wonder, how, how has the status of food cart eating uh, changed uh, because of, of COVID? Um, are, are people seeing uh, food carts as more than just a, you know, a lunch option uh, during the work week? Um, uh, can, you, can you speak a little bit about, about where, where they stand in the hierarchy of, of fancy Portland cuisine? Sure. So, you know, I think that actually part of the reason um, Portland's food carts have been so celebrated for so long is because you get such a range of cuisines mm-hmm. and you get such a range of, of styles of food. You know, I think like Wild Moors, they that's sort of almost borderline fine dining. Like you're getting these really <laughs> sort of special meals yeah. out of food carts. Um, and, you know, again, um, there are simultaneously some really like high quality meals that are coming out of these food carts that people maybe are taking a second look at. Um, I do think that you, you brought up an interesting point when it comes to, like, you know, the fast lunch option. Um, I think some food carts that have been struggling are in those positions where they're in, you know, mainly business districts, and they really rely on either tourist business or, um, you know, lunch business, but, you know, work, work lunch business. And suddenly people aren't going into offices and tourists aren't coming in in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, That has caused strain, of course. Um, But I have noticed, you know, I I talked to Deepak at um, Desi PDX and, you know, he was saying that there are more people coming in 
that are ordering these like family meals and taking big amounts of food home. People are ordering more because they are doing dinner and they're doing dinner for their families. Mm-hmm. It's not just one person going up and getting a single meal for themselves. So uh, as we wrap things up here, um, just if you can briefly talk uh, into the kind of broader sense of, of Portland restaurants and, and the, the innovations that, that, that they are or aren't making, um, is there room for that kind of uh, creative change? Uh, can can a, a brick-and-mortar restaurant uh, you know, move as, as, as swiftly as a food cart? You know, I think that's, from where I'm standing, I think it'd be much more difficult because there are, the, the cost is so high, the barrier of entry is so high, mm-hmm. and there are so many more people who depend on you. So, you know, when you're in a cart and you're kind of your only employee, maybe your partner is working with you or you have one employee, um, you know, you can try something out. If it doesn't work, it's one day. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when you're... In a restaurant, you have to pay for all this thing, you know, all of the food, and you menu changes are really involved, and you have to pull in all of the servers and the line cooks, and you know, um, and if it isn't successful, a lot more people are impacted. So I think it's a little harder for restaurants to um, stay light on their feet in the same way. Interesting. So before we let you go, is there a COVID-born food cart that you are most excited about? There are a ton, but I really <laughs> want to mention Nacho. It's um, a new food cart in the Cartlandia pod. Um, they, I mean, it's been amazing to watch what, you know, they opened in March, like right oh. when things got bad. And they're doing so much fun stuff, you know, wild brunches, these like crawfish tacos. There are specials all over the place, pop-ups. Um, it's, it's been really fun. There's always something different to try when you're there. I, um, I think that they're doing some really fun stuff. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, for your insights on the Portland food scene. Uh, Brooke Jackson-Glidden is the editor of Eater Portland. You can find her work at pdx.eater.com. Again, Brooke, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Augustina Elizabeth brings us an interview with Shannon Reese. Shannon's 14-year-old daughter, Soraya, was arrested and convicted to 11 years in a youth correctional facility after police responded to a mental health incident. In this time, when communities are demanding that financial resources are reallocated to better meet community needs like mental health, this case is getting national attention. You can also find a statement by the Coos County District Attorney in our show notes. This story tells the impact of bullying on a young person of color and how her life has changed with interaction with the police. This is Augustina Elizabeth with X-Ray FM. Can you tell me your name, please? Shannon Reese. And we are talking about her daughter, Soraya, who is currently in custody. Soraya, I'll try not to get emotional. Starting in kindergarten, Soraya came home for the first time and said that a kid had called her the N-word. And she was five. So I hadn't had that conversation with her yet. Um, I had to have that conversation with her. You know, it just means ignorant, ignore it. I didn't know what to say to her. By 2018, sixth grade, the kids really became aggressive towards her uh, racially telling her that she's ugly and that her hair is ugly and her face is ugly and that she should just kill herself and she's worthless. Um, and Soraya slit her wrists in school 
at the North Bend Middle School. I took her in to the emergency room. I was already on my way to pick her up. I took her to the emergency room. They didn't keep her. They sent her home with us. The school said we should probably just finish out the rest of the year online. But the kids who did this to her, you know, they didn't have to miss outdoor school. and They didn't get suspended or in trouble. Soraya did. Um, she just became really depressed. She started wearing black. She started cutting all the time. We had had her in counseling. We'd had her in counseling for an entire year when her pediatrician said that we should probably try an antidepressant. Um, I spent some time in the system as well as a youth in group homes and foster homes. And I'm really almost anal retentive about medications because I know if you're already depressed, they can really exacerbate that. It can make a problem worse, especially when they're so young. So her pediatrician prescribed her Prozac. She started her at 10 milligrams. Two weeks later, she doubled her to 20 milligrams. Two weeks later, she doubled her to 40 milligrams. Soraya was 95 pounds, 13 years old. So 40 milligrams is where she stayed at. Um, Can you tell me what was happening with Soraya? So my husband woke up. He's a farmer, a dairy farmer. So his internal alarm, he gets up around 3.30 every day. Mm -hmm. He said he woke up and he noticed all the lights were on in the house. And my sister was coming from Minnesota that day. So he went, oh, Soraya stayed up all night. and He was going to go tell her, Soraya, you need to go to bed. We had a hotel room booked for three days. We were going to go swim and have fun with my sister. And Soraya was just sitting on the floor, just sitting crisscross applesauce on the, the living room floor. Um... We never smelled gas. I never smelled it. He never smelled it. But my husband said, Shannon, I think you need to wake up. There's something wrong with Soraya. And so then I go out into the living room and she was checked out. She, there was no lights on inside of her head. She was just sitting there smearing like this on the floor, just smearing. So you're, you're rubbing your hands on the table, Mm -hmm. like you're finger painting. Yeah. That's what she was doing on the floor. Um, I instantly got scared because she had been off of her medication for like three and a half, four days. And I knew that this was something to watch for. Her behaviors had been getting more erratic. Um, I'd found her in her room with a noose around her neck that she made out of an extension cord. And so we called Coos Health and Wellness because I was scared for her that morning. I don't remember them transferring me to dispatch. I don't, I don't remember how the cops even got sent to my house. Um, But Aaron Gilbert from Myrtle Point Police Department was the first person to show up and he had his gun drawn on his side. And he came in and he said, Soraya, honey, what's going on? Soraya thought that I had called the cops on her, so she was mad at me. You know, she's 13 and she was mad and he said... I'm going to place these handcuffs on you. You're being detained. You're not being arrested. Do you understand what I'm saying? And she said, yes. He walked her out of my house and read her her Miranda rights the second they were outside my door. And we never got her back. They charged her for a four inch by four inch square of carpet that had gas on it. They charged her 
three counts of attempted homicide and five counts of attempted arson. And we told them that they were wrong. We told them this was a mental health issue. Uh, they wouldn't let me be in the room with Soraya when she was interrogated by Officer Ritz from the Coos County Sheriff's Department. Everything just had still such a blur in my head. Um, Soraya's lawyer, Kate Dyer, told her to accept the plea and plead guilty and that she would get out of juvenile detention. She'd been in jail for three months by then. Um, and she was sexually harassed, which she documented and wrote to me about at home. Her lawyers told her to take the plea. And she took the plea and they sentenced her to 11 years in prison. If there was one thing that could have been done per- differently that day, what would that one thing be? To have a counselor actually come to have the service that we actually call actually respond to the call. I feel like a lot of this would have been prevented all of it. Possibly she needed to be put on a, in a psych hold and, and let me just throw in, we found a document in her file from Coos health and wellness stating that morning that the police were supposed to transport my daughter to the hospital and that they don't know where she is because she's not at the hospital and they don't know where my daughter is. She had been arrested instead of taken to the hospital for help. So do you believe that the police in Coos Bay are qualified to deal with mental health crises? No, they're not. No, they're absolutely not. And do you believe that they should be responding to emergency calls? No, no, no. And that's why we say defund the police. I feel like there's a better way for resources to be shared in the community to actually get the appropriate people to respond. You know, you don't need police for a homeless call. You don't need police for a mental health call. You don't need police for so many different types of calls. Um, I feel like sometimes they just make it worse. So in your experience, your daughter was taken and arrested when she should have been given mental health yes. help. Yes. And now you're fighting to get her back yeah. so that she can get the help she needs. Yes. We're not asking for her to come home, you know. In a perfect world, she'd walk through the door tomorrow and, and be home. However, getting out of prison and coming back into uh, not so much structure sends adults sideways. I'm not going to set Soraya up to fail. She has a lot of trauma from the last year that she needs to deal with and that our whole family needs help dealing with. So we really want her to go to an inpatient facility where they can help all of us so we can get family counseling. And then when Soraya comes home, we're stronger than we were before she left. Yeah. This is Augustina Elizabeth with X-Ray FM coming to you from Coos Bay, Oregon. Thank you. Thanks to Augustina, Shannon, and Brooke for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.